So, years ago, I climbed Chimney Mountain. Who here has climbed Chimney Mountain? A few of you. It's close by. Me and my friends planned on climbing up this mountain into the caves that are at the top of the mountain. I think they're called Eagle Cave. I think that's what it's called. Is that right? Eagle Cave? Never went into the cave. Were you too freaked out? Didn't have time, okay. So our plan was to climb Chimney Mountain. We planned on going into this cave probably 10 years ago. I think Aaron Koonsman was with us, uh, so he's been around for a while. And I was very excited, but little did I know that would lead to probably one of the most terrifying moments of my life, physically speaking. But more of that later. I call that a cliffhanger. For good reason. So let me back up. Years ago, I went on an early spring camping trip with my friends uh, in the end of March. In upstate, we call that second winter. Um, The spring is called second winter. Um, And there was this tiny bit of snow at the bottom of the mountain that we were climbing. Not much at all, just crunching through it, not much snow. I'm an inexperienced hiker, inexperienced camper at this point. Um, I just saw this snow on the ground. And I judged the whole trip based on the conditions of the snow on the ground at the bottom of the mountain. And I prepared accordingly, which is not good news. The sneakers I chose to wear to climb this mountain were not hiking boots or hiking shoes, which I later was given as a gift by some lovely people who will remain nameless. They were not my best even sneakers I used for everyday work. They were my worn out sneakers. I didn't want to wear out my good shoes hiking up a mountain. And after all, there wasn't very much snow. Uh, my right shoe, the, the rubber was separated from the sole. And so up the mountain, I could just hear it slapping the bottom of my... <laughs> Before I got married, I had terrible style clothing and I uh, wore things that were worn out. And some people can say amen to that who knew me before I was married. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so you hear the shoes slapping, slapping, slapping. I, I wore a simple t-shirt and over that was a fleece that had a tear in it. I had a big, goofy orange hat I got from my job at Walmart Distribution Center, which I wore in the freezer when I worked in the freezer on the forklift at the time. I had no backpack because I knew I could fit all of the stuff I was bringing. I was a minimalist, right? I could fit all the stuff I was bringing into a giant JCPenney bag. I knew it. <laughs> it wasn't a big deal. I had a giant cloth sleeping bag. You know those kind that are very porous? Like they're, they're like a paper towel, more or less. Stuffed that in my bag, along with a couple other things, a couple necessities, like a guitar. Uh, you know, I, had, I, I definitely was prepared for the, for the March conditions at the top of the mountain at this point. Getting up was tough. The snow got deeper and deeper. And pretty soon we were what's called, I think, post-holing, where you are, your, your leg is going all the way into the snow up to your knees, and you're just kind of up a mountain. Um, again, I could hear my sneaker just flip, flip, flip. There's ice getting inside of my sock at this point. This is day one for a three-day trip. When I got to the top of the mountain, I set up a tent uh, on a downhill area, which I now realize was a runoff. That was a mistake. Um, it, it rained the first night we slept there. And I woke up, and from my knees down, in the middle of the night, the fabric of my sleeping bag was drenched in freezing water from my knees down. So I did what any smart person would do. I pulled myself up the hill, you know, far as I could, and I curled up in the first part of my sleeping bag to keep warm. Um, the next morning, after a not-so-good night's sleep, I dragged my sleeping bag outside the tent to hang up to dry, hopefully for the next night by the fire, 
And when I pulled up the sleeping bag, there was literally water flowing through my tent because it was a runoff. <laughs> the tent was not waterproof. Um, I came around uh, the campfire, and I guess I was sitting very still, and I was very quiet. Everyone was happy, lively, having their morning coffee. Everyone who knew what they were doing. And uh, my friend said, hey, Nate, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine. I don't like to be a burden to anybody. I'm totally fine. I thought I was fine. No, he said, you are shivering and your lips are not the right color. So I think you're getting hypothermia. <laughs> and mom, if you're listening to this online, I'm sorry. Um, in a now classic picture, which will be put up here by Carrie, uh, I am sitting barefoot with plastic bags around my feet and other people's gear around me to keep me warm. Uh, because my feet, you remember, my, my shoes were soaked through, so I had to have bare feet in plastic next to the fire. And that's how I survived, with a little help from my friends. Um, that's how I learned to camp and what gear was needed for camping. I set out excited, enthusiastic, with great intentions, uh, like usual, and ended up needing a lot of help to survive. I prepped for the conditions at the bottom of the mountain, just barely. It really was questionable even for that level of snow. And I didn't ask for help or insight from other more experienced campers because I just wanted to be someone who knew, knew what they were doing from the outset. Anyone else like that? Like, to know, like people to think you're competent, yeah? Or that you're tough? You can survive hypothermia? <laughs> you somehow are the one exception to dying from being too cold? Um... I'll tell my first caving story later, but um, this story illustrates something like what Jude, probably who was the brother of Jesus Christ, um, younger brother, Jesus was the oldest, uh, was trying to illustrate in his letter. This is Jude, the brother of Jesus we're talking about, who wrote this very short uh, letter. It's one chapter long, and uh, if at any time it seems like people should have been knowing what to expect, and be prepared for the conditions ahead, you would think it would be the first century church. Jesus had just been there. Jesus' little brother is sharing a message uh, about how to get by. But guess what? The conditions were not peachy at the beginning of the church. They had their problems just like we do. And the church apparently was not assessing the threat risk enough at the time, didn't have the gear they needed or the support, and they were headed for trouble. So Jude, Jesus' little brother, decides to write them a letter, someone who, uh, who, who can see what's going on and telling them to wake up a little bit, to realize that the conditions are not as good as you think. Maybe you need to be careful about what you're doing here. Just because there's a little bit of snow on the bottom of the ground, it doesn't mean that when you get up to the top that conditions are going to be favorable. You have to equip yourself for the journey. So in this short letter, Jude tells us some of the dangers we will encounter as Christians and then offers some tools to help us and also to equip us to help others to make it on this journey of faith. And all of this is quite relatable to the world we live in. Like many things in the Bible, there's not much mystery as to how this applies to us um, because in our hearts, us humans are kind, of, kind of don't change very much. The forms change, but the stuff that trips us up remains remarkably the same. So we're going to read, read uh, Jude 1, 1 to 16, and then talk about it. 
Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. You hear this? Jude was ready to write a letter about something completely different, and he realized there's an emergency coming. I've got to write about something different. I've got to equip these people for what's ahead. What's the problem? Verse 4, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you, the church. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers who have inf infiltrated the church pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively towards whatever they do not understand. And what, they, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that, that destroy them. So these are mockers, people that just make fun of the things of God. They're cynical. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way. And all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. So Jude waxes poetic in this passage talking about the threat that's infiltrated the church, the types of people that have come into the church. N.T. Wright describes these people very well, and I get this from him. He says, find people who today are saying that God loves everyone exactly as they are, so everyone must stay exactly as they are, doing all the things they want to do, because God is so full of generosity that obviously he wants them to do that. Find such people, and you found those of whom Judah is writing. Now there's truth in that statement, but there's also untruth. God does love everyone, and God receives people wherever they are in their journey, and invites them into a journey of faith. But God does not want people to stay in their sin and, and even to continue the same way that they started. God wants people to grow. God wants people to, and God is full, is full of generosity, but he doesn't want people to stay the same 
what kind of a parent would God be, he's called the father, if, he, if his desire was to bail us out of, of all of our troubles and we never learn and he just keeps on bailing us out, bailing us out, bailing us out, our character never improves, that's not who God is. But find the people that say that God loves everyone exactly as they are and so they must stay the same, that God is so full of generosity that he wants them to stay the same. Find those people. You found the people whom, to whom Judah is writing. Find the people who today are saying that Jesus is just one religious teacher among many. One way of salvation among others. And there might well be a variety of paths up the mountain of which Jesus' path is only one. That it's important not to make exclusive claims or will become arrogant. Find such people and you found those of whom Judah is writing. Now, to say that faith in Christ is a litmus test for being a Christian is, I'd say, an understatement. It's in the very title, as I've said, Christian. Um, is it exclusivistic for us to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father through him, any more than it is to say there's multiple ways to be saved and don't tell me that there's only one way? You know, is, is it any less exclusivistic? You have to hold the line somewhere. And Jude says, along with Jesus Christ and the rest of the testimony of Scripture, there is one name under heaven by which men can be saved. That's Jesus. So if you find people who say that Jesus is just one great teacher, but there's, he, there's many others that could probably do just as well and you're good, you find the kind of people Jude is writing to. So people uh, that are saying, let's just keep on going the way that our instincts lead us and keep on sinning, because God's, God's gracious. He's going to justify us in the end. What's the point of, of growing and improving and, and becoming sanctified? People that say, you know, Jesus is good. He's one of many options. He's helpful to me, so I hold on to him. Uh, but, you know, if something better comes along, maybe I'll jump onto that wagon. Those are the people that Jude is writing to. These are the people that have infiltrated the church and are uh, not only sharing these kinds of ideas that he describes very poetically here, but also kind of making fun of the things they don't understand. Angels, the spiritual realm, uh, the, w the way of salvation. You know, these things are just kind of being mocked because these people are cynical and they don't understand spiritual things. And, you know, there's something about mockery. It just is very infectious. <laughs> um, that's why David said, I don't, I, I, would, I don't really want to sit in the seat of mockers, sit around people that are mocking the things that I hold dear because... It starts to influence you when you sit in that seat of mockers. So if these new first century Christians are not careful, says Jude, if they engage in an early spring camping trip without the correct equipment, it could all prove spiritually fatal. So Jude says, stay alert. Stay alert. These are people, there are people among you who are teaching and modeling things that resulted in Old Testament people getting themselves into deep, deep trouble right? What makes you think you will escape the same consequences as people that have done this stuff in the past if you do not keep on persevering in Christ? He cites tons of Old Testament examples, first of which is the Israelites delivered from Egyptian captivity. He said, you know, God delivered these people in a great salvation, but then they grumbled against him and sinned against him, and they got the consequences for their actions. Just because God has saved you, it doesn't mean it's a license to keep on going the way you're going. You should, there should be some level of gratefulness in us and, and joy in what God has done and continuing in what God has done. And the, verse 4 says, these certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people 
who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Like James Bond, a license to kill, right? I can kill anyone I want. That's James Bond. Um, this is a license for immorality these people had. No, Jesus forgives us. We're saved by grace. We have a license to kill, baby. Let's do whatever we want. Let's fill up in ourselves any behavior, any follow any instinct. It's all good. These people deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And these sins are really nothing new. These mindsets are nothing new, and they are in our society today. It's totally relatable to us. So Jude is a great word for us to be careful, to be careful of what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, accepting the grace of God, but then just continuing willy-nilly as if we hadn't ever heard about Jesus. People say, since I'm saved by grace, since God saved me, he loves me, I might as well keep on sinning because God will still love me. And I'm not saved by works anyway. So what's, what's the point of even following the commands of Christ if I'm saved by grace anyway? But Paul, anticipating this argument, said in Romans 6, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So everyone who lives according to that mindset that was brought into the church according to all these Old Testament examples from the Exodus to Simon and Gomorrah who, uh, to the sons of Korah to, to uh, Cain and Enoch, all of these examples did not end well. So Jude is like, don't pretend that you're the big exception to the rule. Um, we, need to, we need to be careful to approach God with a respect for what he's done. You know? If your mother or father gives you $100,000 to do a down payment on your house and then you're like, well, I, I refuse to do anything to honor you because, you know what, That's, that money is deserved by me. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm not going to visit you. I'm not going to support you. You know, in fact, I curse you. It would be better if you were dead so I could have my whole inheritance right now. We would not be cool with that. It's the same kind of attitude that we can have with God if we're not careful, right? He's given us a great gift at a great cost and to those who sincerely take him up, take that, receive that gift, and then walk in it, desiring to obey Jesus. Jesus appears as a servant. He comes and he washes our feet. He helps us in our weakness. But for, for those who take it for granted, it's kind of a sad situation. And it's a dangerous place to be. And uh, Jude's thing is, you know, sometimes people receive consequences and condemnation when they presume upon God's grace and just use it as a license a license to sin and do what they want. Jude 1.16 concludes about these people saying, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. And I think you should do with that sentence what I did with that sentence when I read it this week and ask, ask myself, is this me? You know, this is something that I should, we should say, is this me? Am I a grumbler and a fault finder? Do I kind of just follow whatever instincts I have, forgetting what the Holy Spirit might want me to do? Do I boast about myself, and do I flatter other people so that I can get ahead, have another friend? That's a scary question to ask, but it's very revealing. I mean, that was, it was really good for me to meditate on Jude one sixteen, because, you know, the truth is that we could be that person very easily. So don't be like this, says Jude, and keep watch of yourself. And keep watch of the church. There's more to this story. I survived, I survived my early camping trip because of the help of my friends who gave me little bits of each of their gear. Uh, noticing the signs of uh, hypothermia and helping me out, that was a big deal. 
And the same was definitely true when I went caving at Chimney Rock. I literally prepared zero to go caving. I didn't even change the batteries in my flashlight because I'm stupid just like everybody else who doesn't know what they're doing, right? Um, I had no rope. There were walls that you had to rappel down if you've been in Chimney Rock. Um, and I sort of walked in confident and just excited that things were going to be fine. My friend had a good rope, so he put the rope down and we kind of anchored it. And people started making their way down the wall, rappelling down that wall. Uh, I'm not sure how tall the wall was, six, seven feet maybe. It's a pretty scary height, eight feet taller than I was. I started going down that wall and rappelling. But I was so terrified because I was slipping off this rope. I ended up yelling, I'm going to fall. And the guys caught me and sent me down below. And that was, a, that was probably one of the most terrifying physical moments I had, except for my car accident that I was in, uh, where I thought this might be the end of me uh, walking around or being alive. And uh, equally terrifying was the thought, now I have to climb up this wall later on when I go back out of this cave. <laughs> you know, that was equally terrifying for me. Later in that exploration, as we walked through these tunnels, things got really kind of narrow in there. Finally, you're in this great room. It's, it's, a, it's a big room, you think. You look around with your flashlight. Um, my flashlight's batteries were fading out, so I couldn't see very well in there. And so I ended up linking up with a friend who led me out to safety, but not before climbing up that horrible wall with the help of literally everyone to get up on that wall again, boosting me and pulling me <laughs> like I was a sack of flour. Now, very humbling, very humbling. It's very fearful and disorienting to be in a cave. It's very fearful to be that high up and not know if you're going to be caught. And the moral of the story here is that we need help. And we need others, others uh, other people around us need help too. They do. In this walk of faith, we need help and other people need help. God loves to help people. But let me tell you a little secret about God that I get from the Bible and from my life experience. As much as God loves to help people, God loves to help people through people. God loves to equip people to be his hands and feet and to help. Uh, we are called the body of Christ on earth, the church. God inhabits us and he uses us to help others. God prefers to help others through his people who he has equipped to help others. So what are the tools that God has given us to help us and to help us to begin helping other people around us who are trying to walk in the faith? To hear those tools, we're going to go to the end of Jude, Jude one seventeen to 25. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. 
to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. To him who is able to keep you from falling. You work hard and he's working hard. Draw near to him, he draws near to you. When you work for God, he begins to work for you. So what's the first thing that he gives us as a tool for our, uh, our descent into the cave as we are trying to help ourselves and help others to follow God? He begins in verse 20 saying, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's the first thing. Build yourself up in your faith. What does that look like? This is the teaching of Jesus in the Bible and a firm heart-level commitment to follow it, to learn it, to follow it, to find out what pleases God. It's not all a mystery. Some things are mysterious. Many things are not. It's in the Bible and can be found in, in, in prayer and study. But he's looking for us to build ourselves up in this faith, uh, to take this doctrine, this teaching that God's given us in the Word and look at our hearts also and say, am I, am I on board with this? Am I doing this? He wants us to do this and build ourselves up in the faith. That's why we've been reading through the Bible as a family for almost two years now, to know what's in the Word so that we can know how to follow Jesus better. That's what we're, we're doing. And we are in Job right now. If you want to jump in for the last two months, you know what? Well, that's a victory lap. Finish with us. Um, look on your, on your bulletin. There is a reading plan that tells you where we are in Job. Just jump in. There's an app for your phone. Know the Word. Build yourself up in your faith. What things would build up your faith? Being in the Word, prayer, wisdom, um, checking your heart, spending time in silence and stillness before God, asking Him to help you and judge your motives and help you to see where you're at, sitting with that passage from Jude uh, one sixteen, asking God, is this, is, this, is this me? Am I a fault finder, a grumbler, just following my own evil impulses, boasting about myself and then only complimenting others to make myself feel or look better? You know? Build up your faith. Second uh, recommendation is praying in the Holy Spirit. This sounds really, this is something that's loaded probably culturally where you're like, wow, this sounds like a different type of church than I'm used to. I don't know how to pray in the Spirit. I will be the first to admit that prayer is a great mystery. Prayer is a mystery, how it, how it works, what, how it accomplishes what it accomplishes. But just because we do not completely understand how something works. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be committed to it and persist in it. Prayer is something that the Bible tells us to, to bring before God as an act of worship. And as we pray sincerely, and as the, it's, the Word says, the Holy Spirit brings forth groans that our words cannot express. It's praying in the Spirit. Getting in touch with the Holy Spirit, Christ in you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is within you by his Spirit. And as you pray before God faithfully, even if you're not feeling anything, the Spirit begins to intercede for you in words that groans cannot express. And as we pray in the Holy Spirit, as these prayers come from within us, as we spend time in prayer, just putting time in, God's protecting, sustaining love and power is drawn into our lives and into the lives of the people we're praying for. This is something we believe. Prayer is the primary work of the people of God. We spend, we have a Wednesday prayer time at 11.15. Uh, we spend a couple hours in prayer. 
Be, and we, we could do a lot of stuff with those two hours. You could all do a lot of stuff with the time you'd be praying, right? Just let's not pray, let's do other stuff. But if you believe that prayer is powerful and changes things, if you believe that you are drawing into your life what you need from God and, and, and drawing into someone else's life what, what, what they need from God, it's this powerful time of, uh, of growing and, and understanding and connecting with God. I guess you could liken that again to that parent-child relationship. You know, what's the point of calling my parents? You know, they, they're paying for my college already. You know, why should I call them? It's about relationship, people, right? God has made the first advance of relationship with us. He promises that when we submit ourselves to him, he will draw near to us when we draw near to him. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for us, to pray continually. It, pray, Paul says, I, I pray without ceasing. You know, it's talking about something different than just taking an hour of your time. It's talking about subconsciously offering up prayers and talking to God as you go about your business, too. Give thanks, pray continually. This is God's will for you. So build yourself up in your faith, pray continually. And it says, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. It is God's job to keep us in his love. But it's our job not to wander outside of God's love. You know, God brings us into a, uh, into a fold, like a sheep, right? And then we're like butting our head against the gate. Boom, <laughs> boom. He's like, it's safe in here. Boom, boom. Eventually we get some friends. We all bust down that door and get out. God is not coercive. God is not a, a king who grabs us by the neck and, and slams us to the floor and put, throws us in a crate like a factory farmer. You know, that's not who God is. We need to make an effort to stay where God's leading us. Also, it's not just all God's work, but it is something that in John is pretty clear, is his work. None of the ones the Father gave me will I lose, Jesus said. So, yeah, that's God's work to keep us in his love. It's also our work to stay where God leads us. Kind of a really practical thing, I think. And, we, and it says we need to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring us to eternal life. So we need to join in God's work of sustaining us by not always wandering off just because God is taking a long time, in our opinion. We need to wait patiently for him and do our best to stay in his love even as he keeps us there by his sustaining power. And ultimately, the end of this whole thing is God gives us eternal life. Stick with God. He's sticking with us. Next part of the uh, advice in this passage, number four, be merciful to those who doubt. So to those who are leaning in a bad direction and perhaps about to descend a wall without the right kind of gear like I did, you know, realize, first of all, this is the humility part, that you yourself have been in similarly dangerous places in your life and mercifully and kindly warn them, this is what I see. Are you in danger? Show mercy. Build up their faith. Don't be judgmental. Realize that you're the same. Um, but other people need other people who are doubting and working through things, take that time to invest in them, showing mercy to build up their faith. 
The next directive is for someone who's in a little bit more dangerous of a position. It says, save others by snatching them from the fire. So for those who, are, who have begun descending and are beginning to free fall off the cliff of the cave, right, towards the hard floor, you and a couple friends stand below and grab them <laughs> so they don't whack the floor. This is beyond warning people. This is actively seeking them out and then being there when they fail to follow God and end up in some danger. You know, this is, this is another merciful, gracious thing we can do for people because we all have been in bad places and, and we have, we've all not taken the advice of godly friends and mentors and we've all put ourselves in terrible positions, right? So the least we can do, if someone's in danger and not listening to us, we can still be there for them, not give up on them and be there to catch them when they fall. Be that person that says, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pick you up. You're not willing to listen to my, my advice, but day or night I will pick you up. And some of you know what that means. No matter where you are, I'll pick you up. I'll take you home. Finally, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Sometimes you need to show mercy to people coupled with a hard warning. Um, and this is a discernment thing. We have to know, like, where, where is this person at? We, like, we, sometimes it's not... It's not all about just saying, oh, you're fine. You know, God loves you. You'll be fine. It's saying, hey, you know, God loves you. He's with you. But you need to be really careful because if you do this thing, it could end in a really bad place. It's mercy mixed with fear. It's just saying, you know, there are some consequences to the direction you're going. And you need to think about that. Maybe someone doesn't need the rubber stamp on all their decisions in their life. None of us do. We all make bad decisions. And we've chosen bad things that still affect us to this day. You know, nothing should, not everything should be rubber stamped. Some things, sometimes we need to remind someone that God is, God's love is unfailing, his mercy is limitless, but that this is a really bad decision. And if you're going to follow God, you need to think about not doing this thing. So this is kind of the challenge of wisdom as we work with other people, as God works with us to receive mercy and then also to give mercy in its many forms through the wisdom that God provides. And my favorite uh, part of this passage that just really gets to me is the doxology. And this is where it takes the focus off of what we can do to receive from God and what we can do to help other people and reminds us who is the one that's working out our salvation for us, and that is God. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault, with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. That reminds me of the beginning of the passage. It's hemmed in from Jude 1, 1 to 2, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. You are called. You are loved. You are kept by God. But God is not a controller. He's not a controlling God. He's a loving God. God is able to keep you standing, to preserve you through Christ, but don't take it for granted. And work with Jesus, the good shepherd, as he works in you and for you and for other people around you. Jesus serves his disciples by washing their feet. To the one who sincerely wants to follow Jesus and trust in God, God serves that person. The only God, the only quote-unquote God that's ever done such a thing. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.